Good morning. What a pleasure it is to be with you this morning. God has blessed us with a beautiful day. Uh, wonderful to get up and look out this morning. And we are blessed again to be with brothers and sisters in Christ, to raise our voices up together in song, praise to Him. And Brother Deason has done such a fine job in leading our service in that way. We have communed together to remember the sacrifice of our Savior, His body and blood that was given for us. Now we have this time to open up our Bibles and to study His Word. I appreciate the invitation to be with you, extended by the elders, as well as Brother Crozier and his fine work. I commend the idea of this fall focus to take time and to study and focus on the Sermon on the Mount. I have to say that in preparation for this appointment, I've really given myself in time to the sermon, and it's time I needed to give. It's time I needed to spend. And so if you have blessed me and encouraged me by this invitation, and I hope in some small way the things that we study together at this time will be a blessing and a benefit to you. Would you please turn with me in your Bible to the book of Matthew in the fifth chapter? Matthew chapter 5. And the subject that we're going to be exploring is living the sermon in marriage. Living the sermon in marriage. And as we read in Matthew 5 and verse 14, actually, You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. We often talk about the importance of being the light of the world. God has put Christians here. He's put us here with the purpose of standing out. And by standing out, Christians point others toward Him, to the God of heaven, that they might know Him, that, that, may, that they may glorify Him. But I wonder if you have considered that your marriage is a bright light to the world around you. It certainly is. Those that live by the principles of God in their home and in their marriage shine brightly in a world where many marriages flounder and struggle in darkness. I'd like to share with you some information, some statistics that I think show us just how bleak it is for many marriages in our society, for many of our neighbors. Why we have a 50% divorce rate for first-time marriages in our society. Now, I understand this was truly 50% in 1980. And since that time, it has gone down just a little bit, but not really enough to change the number yet. But all these first-time marriages, they last on an average of seven years. And if the average is seven years, I think how many people have been married for 14 or 15 or 20 years just to see it fall apart, just to see it end in divorce? I am touched by this statistic that in the year 2000, single-parent households headed by females numbered 10 million and single-parent households led by males numbered 2 million. Approximately one in three Americans today is a step-parent, a step-child, or a step-sibling. In the year 2000, cohabitators comprised 3 million households. Darkness. Bleak for many marriages. And going by these numbers, I know as I stand before an audience this morning, some of you are step-parents or step-children step-siblings. Some of you may be here and have bought into the wisdom of the world that we should cohabitate. That used to be called shacking up. That's when a, a man and a woman kind of play at house for a while. Just want to try it out before they take their vows. 
I want to be a friend to you this morning by sharing with you a hard truth that if you've bought into that and you're in that arrangement right now, the Bible actually calls that a sinful arrangement. It is fornication. The Bible says that the marriage bed is undefiled. It is honorable among all and undefiled, but that fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. That is not an acceptable arrangement to be cohabitated. Darkness. In this darkness, there needs to be the light of Christian marriages. I was encouraged to run across some other research from Rutgers University. In 2004, they published a survey called The State of Our Unions. And you know what they found? They found that people who have a baby seven or more months after marriages versus people who have their babies before marriage, they reduced the risk of divorce by 24%. Rutgers found that, that when people get married and their own family of origin is intact versus their parents couldn't make it work, their parents were divorced, they reduced their risk of divorce by 14%. And records found that those families that have a religious affiliation versus families that don't go to church anywhere, don't have any religious beliefs, they reduce the risk of divorce by 14%. And I take those numbers together and I crunch them a little bit. And, and here's the Andrew Roberts conclusion, as clinical as it may be, that if marriages who will model the faith reduce their risk of divorce by 52%. What do I mean by that? I mean that if people would listen to God and abstain from sex until after marriage, it would greatly help the health of their marriage. If people grew up in homes where their parents stayed together as God prescribes, it would greatly help the longevity of their marriage. And if a couple would allow the Lord into their home, if they would determine to build their house on the foundation of God and His Word, it impacts the success of their marriage. And what all of this helps us to see in a very concrete way is how a Christian's marriage really is light to the world. Your marriage can be a bright light to the world. Your marriage can be a hopeful example to your neighbors, about half of whom would just love to know the secrets of a marriage that works and is fulfilling and lasts. Your marriage can model that. Your marriage is a light to your children. Your children are watching mommy and daddy. And they look at mommy and daddy's marriage. And that is their understanding. That is their expectation of marriage. And what theirs is going to be like. Let's make the light of our marriage burn bright for God's glory. Let's show others His way. Let's live the sermon in our marriages. And so what we're going to do this morning is, is, is a couple of things. We're going to look at some very practical teaching from the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to apply it to our marriages. And I want to share four lights with you that will help your marriage burn brightly against the dark background of worldly marriages, worldly relationships. If you're taking notes, here's the first light. Number one, it is the light of Beatitudes in your marriage. It is the light of living the Beatitudes in your marriage. We're going to look at Matthew 5 and start in verse 3. And while you're finding that in your text, we might just ask the question, what is the Beatitude anyway that I'm supposed to be living this in my marriage? The International Standard Bible Encyclopedia uh, writes this about a Beatitude. The word Beatitude is not found in the English Bible, but the Latin Beatitudo, from which it is derived, it occurs in the Vulgate. The Vulgate was a translation of the Greek scriptures into Latin, uh, completed about 405 A.D. And the word appeared there in Romans 4, verse 6. 
where reference was made to Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2, David is said to pronounce the beatitude of the man whose transgression are forgiven. Blessed is the man whose sins are not accounted against him. That's the beatitude. That's where the word comes from. So, so the beatitude is this. It is a Greek word translated blessed. It means spiritual well-being and prosperity. It means a deep joy of the soul. The blessed have a share in salvation. The blessed have entered the kingdom of God. The blessed experience a foretaste of heaven. It is a declaration. This is blessed. This is bliss. That's a beatitude. We're talking about a blessedness and a bliss in your marriage. And the first one is in Matthew 5 and verse number 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Now, I try and sum it up in a word. Try and keep it simple. It means to be humble. That's what poor in spirit means. It, it means to be humble and be lowly of yourself. The Bible says God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. James 4 and verse 6. How many of us know it's not just God that resists the proud? Do any of us like an arrogant or a haughty person? No, we don't. Would you want to be married to one? <laughs> no, you wouldn't. We're told to be humble. And Jesus Christ who teaches, be poor in spirit, be humble, He modeled it. He is our example. Put your marker in Matthew 5 or maybe fold that page because we're coming back. But turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. For Jesus who teaches us to be poor in spirit, to be humble, He models it. We want to pick up our reading in Philippians 2, beginning about verse 3. As Christians are instructed, Philippians 2 verse 3, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, there's that poor in spirit, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation taking the form of a bond servant and coming in likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. How humble. How he lowered himself. Yes, he taught us to be humble and to put others first. He lived it himself. And I'm just saying this. We need to live this beatitude. Let us practice it first at home. Be humble. Put your spouse before yourself. We're going to come back to that. But I believe we're going to start right there. Be poor in spirit. The second beatitude, we're going to skip down to verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth. What does the word meek mean? Does it mean weak? No. They rhyme. It does not have the same meaning. When we talk about meekness, we're talking about controlled strength. Being self-controlled. And, and the best example I can give of this is, is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. On the night that he was betrayed. And you remember how they came. He was betrayed by Judas with a kiss. And Peter tried to raise up arms. He took out a sword and he swung and he struck off Malchus' ear. And what did Jesus do? He healed the ear. And he explained to Peter that he could call legions of angels down to stop this. Nothing happened in the garden that night that was because of a lack of strength, because of a weakness on Jesus' part. Instead, what we see is that He is meek. 
that He controlled His strength. He humbled His will and His desire to do the will of the Father. We need meekness in our marriage. We need to control ourselves. We need to control our strength. You know, we don't have to be married too long to find out, to know that very intense situations come up. We're not married too long when somebody loses their job. When one of our children becomes seriously sick. When one of our parents is sick. And there's that kind of tension. There's that kind of burden. And we're nervous and we're high strung and we're stressed. And if we don't have some self-control, if we don't have some meekness, we'll have a big fight. And we'll say things we regret. We'll do something. We'll regret. And ten minutes after the fact, we say, Oh, I, I wish I hadn't said that. Oh, I wish I hadn't done that. Oh, I wish I'd had. I could have that moment back. I would do it differently. But it's done. The harm has been done to our spouse. The harm has been done to the relationship because we weren't meek. We need to have self-control in our marriage. We need to be meek. In Matthew 5 and verse 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. And again, something that's up in a word, the word I want to choose is, is the word forgiveness. What does mercy mean? It means to withhold punishment that another deserves. Forgive them. And marriages don't work without mercy and forgiveness. Life doesn't work without mercy and forgiveness for that matter. We can find it within ourselves to forgive our spouse, and I don't know... I don't really care what they've done to you. We can find it within ourselves to forgive our spouse when we think on all that God has forgiven us. When we look at Matthew chapter 6 and verse 14, Jesus said, For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. We can forgive our spouse. We must forgive our spouse. As we may wrong them, as they may wrong us from time to time, we need to be merciful. And the fourth beatitude I want to draw your attention to is Matthew 5 and verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. What does it mean to be a peacemaker? It means to be reconciling. It means to make up. It means to compromise. It means to bury the hatchet. And let's be honest, sometimes couples need help in this area. And so they seek out a counselor. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. If you you see the need to help be a peacemaker, then go get the help. But sadly, what happens a lot of times is by the time a couple realizes they need that help, one or both of them hasn't been a peacemaker for quite a while. One or both of them have come to a situation now where they're, they're not honestly looking for reconciliation or to make peace. What they're looking for from the counselor is some affirmation. Tell me I'm right to leave him. Tell me I'm right to leave her. And I don't care who your doctor is, from Dr. James Dobson to Dr. Phil. If you're not interested in being a peacemaker, they're not going to do you any good. We have to come to the table in marriage understanding that when we have differences and fights and divides, we have to reconcile. We have to be peacemakers. And if it's necessary, bring another to the table. But it begins with a willingness to reconcile. Blessed is the marriage where partners will practice the Beatitudes. There will be rich, a rich relationship now and the reward of God in the ever after. That's the first light. Live, your, live the Beatitudes in your marriage. Here's the second light. That your marriage might bright, bright, burn brightly the light of security in your marriage. 
We're going to talk about three ways that you can enhance and build security in your marriage. Now, if this partnership between you and your spouse is going to work, there has to be security. There has to be that safety. There has to be that trust. It has to be there. We're going to look at three things in Matthew chapter 5. That Jesus warns us, don't do this. If you do it, it will. It will be a detriment to your security. If you follow His words, though, you are adding security to your marriage. Number one, there is the security of controlling your anger. You want to add security to a relationship? Get a control on your anger. Now, we talked about meekness, didn't we? We're going to talk about it a little deeper in Matthew 5 and verse 21. Matthew 5, verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. Uncontrolled anger manifests itself in a couple of ways. And the first ones we see here is that uncontrolled anger leads to abusive speech. Abusive speech. You fool. You empty head. Raka. Coming from anger in the heart. You know, some have the ability to use words that cut like daggers. They do. They just really have a way with words. Any argument comes up, they can win the argument. Bring people to tears, they can do that. They're insulted. They've always got a quick comeback. They can one-up that insult. And maybe they use profanity. Maybe they don't. Because it can be done with criticism. It can be done with sarcasm. It can be done with maliciousness. As you speak to your spouse. Keep your marker in Matthew 5, but turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Brethren, it ought not to be this way. As Christians or in your home life, we have to control our speech. We need to control this anger and not let it come out in malicious and sarcastic and evil speech. Ephesians 4 and verse 29. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. Verse 31, Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. How are we supposed to speak to other people as Christians is following the Word? How? Am I supposed to build people up? That's what edification means. It's supposed to be like grace, a gift our words to other people. Not, not evil speaking, not malicious, not abusive and destructive, not corrupt. And yet, where do those words come from? Anger uncontrolled. I look back at Matthew 5 and I see as well in verses 21 and 22 that anger uncontrolled leads to abusive actions. Thou shalt not murder. Do I need to say it? Do I need to say that Physical abuse, domestic abuse is wrong. If you're raising up arms and beating down your spouse, beating down your children, you have sinned against them. You are sinning against yourself. You're sinning against God Almighty. It must stop. It's uncontrolled anger. And there is no security in a home where abuse is done through words or fists. You need to add security. You need to add security in your marriage. By mortifying lust. Mortifying lust. That's a great King James word. It means to put to death. It means to kill it. In Matthew 5, a little further down the text, in verse 27, we read, 
You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. You want to add security to your relationship, your marriage, kill lust. Lust for other people. Lust at looking on others. Again, I'm keeping my marker here in Matthew, but going to Colossians 3 and verse 9, where some of your Bibles doubtless will use that word more to find. But in Colossians 3 and verse 9, verse 5, Colossians 3 verse 5, Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. He says kill them. Put it to death. Mortify it. The uncleanness, the passion, the evil desire. Lust. Lust. Here's how lust works. Uh, It's going to be the wedge that drives into the emotional and intimate bond you have with your spouse. It does hit close to home because it certainly can have a a sexual component here, as obviously that's talking about. And, and we all know that guys are wired in such a way that we're very visual. Does this have a message to guys? Do guys have a trouble looking on things, looking on women and lusting? Yeah. And you're all like, duh. <laughs> what I want you to know, though, is it's not just men that can invite lust uh, into their hearts and in a relationship. It's women, too. Now, they're not, they're not wired the same way as guys. It's always visual. They're, they're very emotional and, and, and relational. And so what happens is they're in the workplace and they're with some guy and, boy, it just seems like he hears me in a way my husband doesn't. Oh, he cares and and looks better in a way my husband won't. And and they can begin to develop these fantasies and feed these fantasies uh, of about life with another person, about a relationship with another person. Guys might look at pictures and maybe it's coming in the way of, of, of magazines or movies. Maybe it's coming in the way of through the Internet, and they're looking at things, and, and what are they doing? They begin to cherish these thoughts about a relationship with a person other than their spouse. Thoughts that if acted out would clearly be sin. Lust is about encouraging a fantasy and encouraging escapism. You are no longer fully devoted to your partner. Your mind and your hearts begin to be with somebody else. And I know this about lust, that it is a beast. When it is fed, it grows when it is starved, it dies. I want you to think about that. How does the Bible speak to us about lust? The Bible says flee immorality. Run away from it. The Bible says flee youthful lusts. Run away from them. The Bible says kill it. Colossians 3, verse 5. We read it. And Jesus' words are no less direct when he speaks to amputation. Cut it off. Your eye offends you, pluck it out. It's your right hand, cut it off. It is amputation. Edwin made a great point about this in the book he wrote, about our willingness to, 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 to do a little spiritual surgery. And if we find that there are things enticing us, we've we got to cut it off. If it's coming to you through magazines, and you've got these subscriptions to magazines in your house, you've got to stop those subscriptions. And if it's going to certain movies and certain places, you need to stay away from there. Flee it. And if it's coming in on the internet, it's time to use uh, uh, stronger filters or turn that computer off and get it out of your house. You've got to kill lust. 
and get serious about the amputation. You will add security to your relationship. You will enrich and fortify your marriage because your heart and your mind isn't always dwelling on someone or something else. It's back focused on them, where it should be. And a third area here in Matthew 5 and verse 31. Matthew 5 and verse 31. You can add security to your marriage by taking divorce off the table. In Matthew 5 and verse 31, the Scripture says, Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. I say you can take divorce off the table. Why? Because in following Jesus' words, there's only one situation that even would put it on the table. If one of the spouses has had an extramarital affair. And again, I think this is part of the, the bleakness, the black picture of marriages in our society. People get divorced all the time. It's easy. It's easy to get one. It's common. That's for any reason under the sun. Or for no reason at all. Just no fault divorce. Jesus says, when would it come up when there's been sexual immorality? I tell you, you can have great security in your marriage. But say, we don't say that D word. We don't say it. Because we're not in this issue. We're not in this state. Whatever we're facing, maybe we're going to get through it together. And if you're starting to think that D word, you're starting to mention that D word, you better step back. You don't have to put it on the table. You're not through this place yet. Don't even talk about it. You are sinning against your spouse and yourself when you divorce them for some other reason than what we have here. So just take it off the table. Here's a third light for your marriage. And it's the light of shared treasure in your marriage. The light of shared treasure in your marriage. We want to look down to the sixth chapter now of the sermon. And particularly in verse 19. Matthew 6 and verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. A marriage needs to be united in all areas. And yes, this is talking first. Uh, it seems about money, and we do need to be on the same page and our finances. But what I'm really wanting to focus in on here is this idea that where your treasure is, verse 21, there your heart will be also. Where your priority is, where your value is, that's what's getting the best of you. That's what's getting your energy. That's what's getting your thoughts and your focus. That's what's getting your resources. Where your treasure is, what you value, that's what's getting your heart. Where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Now, let me just ask some questions. You can talk about it with your spouse and... Sure, there's other questions that could come up, but, you know, where is your treasure when it comes to religion, when it comes to the faith? How, how upsetting it is to find out that people waiting, you know, and they've been married for three or six months before finally kind of the honeymoon settling down a little bit, and one of them starts to thinking, we got to go to church somewhere. Find out. And then they talk about this. It needs to be shared. You need to be on the same page, the same foundation for your home. And so I'm not misunderstood. You need to become a Christian. And you need to follow the New Testament and be a member of the Lord's church. That's what you need to do. But you have to have the shared value in religion, in the faith. It will direct all the rest of your life. 
the material things. You've got to find out. Is this the value? Is this the priority? Is this what this person's life is all about? It is all about having the biggest house. It is all about having the car. You've got to find out. You've got to have the talk. How much are we going to give uh, to, to the Lord, to the church? How much are we going to give to charity? Are we going to give? You've got to have these talks. You need to be on the same page here. You must have shared values here because all your best is going into it. Raising kids. Raising kids. I know everybody is an expert at raising somebody else's kids. But unfortunately, we only have our own. <laughs> and so... Parents, we better be on the same page when it comes to disciplining the children. How are we going to discipline the children? What penalties? We have to be on the same page so that we are consistent in the discipline of the children. And the parents don't figure out, somebody stopped, I always get away with it, somebody else is hard, that big cop, bad cop thing. That's not going to work. We're going to be on the same page. A shared value here. And so we put all of our best, all of our effort into it. This is the treasure. This is where our heart is. And it's together. Also, we can walk a narrow road together with shared treasure. In Matthew chapter 7 and verse 13, it says, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. Amos asked, Amos 3 verse 3, Can two walk together unless they are agreed? I don't know of a specific prohibition in the New Testament for a Christian marrying a non-Christian, but I think there's an awful lot that would suggest that it's not a wise decision to make. It's not. You don't want to be in a marriage with somebody that when you wake up in the morning, you're getting out of bed, that person is drawing you back to the world because their heart and their faith is not with yours. You want someone who gets up out of bed with you with the determination to help you walk that narrow way. Go through that narrow way. Go the straight way. Because this person is so close to you and, they, and they're going to influence you in everything. You need to be together on this. I'm so thankful to have a wife that I can tell her, ask her and tell her, but pray for me. Pray for me. And a lot of times I'll do that on a Sunday morning. You know, a couple of weeks ago I was preaching on something and, and uh, pray for me. Oh, she knows I need it. She, she said a prayer for me. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I preached on something that wasn't. She said, "Why do you want to pray for me?" I just laughed. I said, "Honey, I always need your prayers. Your prayers. Because we are united together, we're walking a narrow road, and you need that. You need that prayer and spiritual union with your spouse." Here's our fourth life this morning, and that is the light of the golden rule in your marriage. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, you know these words. Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. I wonder, do you have needs that you expect to be met in the marriage? Do you? We can all say, God. Yes, we all do. We all have needs. We all have an expectation. You, you just don't want to get punched in, in, in right now with your elbow. Yes, you do. So does your spouse. Meet their needs first. Put them first. Dr. Willard Harley wrote a book a few years ago called His Needs, Her Needs. I'm not going to preach that book to you. But what is interesting from the book is that he, through his research, has found a certain list of needs 
that women need to have met, and not necessarily in the order they're up on the screen, but I give them to you, that women need affection in their marriage. They need communication, openness and honesty, financial support, family commitment. They expect those needs to be satisfied in their marriage. And as research also found that men have needs. They expect satisfied in marriage. And maybe your order's not going to be exactly what's up here, but... Uh, you know, probably you have these same needs. You're thinking, yeah, I'm going to get this met in marriage. Sexual fulfillment, recreational companionship, an attractive wife, domestic support, admiration. Are these lists the same? Are they the exact same needs? No, they don't. No, they don't. Do we need help figuring out what our spouse needs? Sure we do. We get an indication of this in the Scriptures. In 1 Peter 3 and verse 7, when husbands are told to dwell with their wives in an understanding manner, you need to learn her so that you can satisfy her needs. In Titus 2 and verse 4, older women are told, you teach the younger women how to love their husbands. Teach them how. Because we have to learn. We have to learn. And so in understanding, my wife's needs are different than my own. And I'm going to put her first because I have an expectation, desire that my needs be met. I've got to learn her and meet her needs. Supply her. And I want to say this, and the lesson is yours. Don't wait to reciprocate love from your spouse. Initiate it. That's love. Look at that list. You say, Brother Roberts has the best point she made all day. He needs to do this and this and this for me. And then, <laughs> and then, I'll start being who I ought to be. Look with me to First John chapter 4. You miss the whole thing if you walk out of here and you think, my spouse heard the best sermon ever this morning. <laughs> it's for you. <laughs> In First John 4 and verse 8, He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be a propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Verse 19 says, If we love Him, or we love him because He first loved us. You want to love your spouse, you don't wait for them to start doing right and get it all straightened out. That needs to come along, I'm sure. But real love is doing it first, isn't it? Putting them first above yourself. Practicing this golden rule to them at home first. And meeting their needs first. And we don't wait for them to start. We do it. Because we love them. And this is the model of love. This is true love that God has shown for us. Aren't you thankful He didn't wait till you stopped being a sinner before there was forgiveness for your sins? And you have to earn your way back to Him, but by His love and mercy, a sacrifice was made and a Savior provided. Because we don't get back on our own. He didn't wait till we were so lovable. He loved us. Oh yes, friends. Your marriage can be a bright light. In the darkness of the world around you, a rich and fulfilling relationship founded upon God's Word as He intends. A wonderful place to start is by living the sermon in there.